Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle. This is the Schwab, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, and today we are speaking with Morwenna Ludlow, professor of Christian history and theology at the University of Exeter, a woman who knows a thing or two about universal salvation in Christianity. Hello. Morwenna, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I have recently been covering Gregory of Nyssa, Mm -hmm. a fascinating thinker of the 4th century, surrounded by a bunch of other fascinating thinkers. But he doesn't come out of nowhere. And to contextualize him, he's pretty much just coming out and saying, universal salvation is how it works. Everything in the universe is going to be saved. We can come back to maybe what that means. Because God is infinitely good. So how could it not be? Mm -hmm. Is that a fair, super over-condensed summary. But before that, we also have ideas of maybe there's universal salvation. I think perhaps expressed a little more esoterically or a little more kind of expressed as a possibility, but we're not going to make it a hard theological position, this sort of thing. So how would you draw the picture of the idea of universal salvation from the beginning of, you know, early church emerging out of the, the earliest evidence we have? So I think the most important thinker before Gregory of Nyssa is origin of Alexandria. And in his theology, he reads uh, certain New Testament texts, like the book of 1 Corinthians in particular, focusing on chapter 15, where Paul writes about resurrection. And halfway through uh, chapter 15, Paul writes that um, in the end, God will be all in all. And this was a fundamental text for Origen, and he took that to mean that in the end, God, who is good, will be in and through everything that exists, so that evil will cease to exist. And therefore, Origen argued, um, everything uh, that is rational um, will be saved. So Origen uh, explains this idea in various of his writings. He seems to be fairly consistent about this point. It's not clear how many of Origen's audience would have picked this up. It may have been that he was teaching this idea to those who were closer to him and not necessarily preaching it when he became a priest in Caesarea. Nevertheless, by the time you get to uh, Gregory of Nyssa, a hundred or so years later, Origen had become famous for this particular idea, not to say uh, notorious. Even in origin, though, it doesn't come out of nowhere. Um, it looks as though Clement of Alexandria also had an idea that punishment after death would be purificatory yeah. and that God is good. And so if you add those two things together, you might come to the conclusion that in the end, God's purificatory punishment will be successful in everybody. It's just that Clement doesn't seem to push that conclusion with absolute uh, clarity and certainty. I don't think myself that Paul, the writer of 1 Corinthians himself, was a universalist, but uh, it is certainly the case that people like Clement and Origen were reading the New Testament texts and taking their theology from them. So although they were influenced by various uh, Greek philosophical streams of thought, I think we need to take them seriously as sincere Christian theologians. This was um, them reflecting on scripture and reflecting on their concept of good and God that they found there. So we have origin and you've alluded now to this uh, one aspect of, of a kind of 
platform that becomes characterized as origenism, right? Yes. And we get these sort of origenist controversies where this is my non-specialist understanding. Tell me if you think this is a valid way of looking at it. As orthodoxy is slowly coalescing and getting closer and closer to a an agreement on fundamental doctrinal things from the early 4th century onwards. Really. Mm-hmm. Everyone's arguing all the time. They will go on arguing for hundreds of years, but nevertheless, what eventually will become an orthodox position is kind of nailed down by sort of the end of the 5th century in retrospect. Yes. And the same huge conversation isolates a bunch of doctrines which are going to be considered doctrines of origin that are not orthodox. But we still really want origins hermeneutics and we really want origins kind of insights. So there's this kind of ambivalence about origin and all things originian in in the whole kind of range of Christian thinking. And it's yes. a big problem in the 4th, 5th, 6th centuries. Yes, um, but I suppose the way in which the problem is characterised by various people is not always completely honest. So someone like um, Jerome, for example, I think is deeply indebted to Origenist exegesis, as you've hinted, but um, has very clearly stated concerns about some of Origen's doctrines, not just eschatology, actually, but also doctrines regarding the Trinity. So Jerome tends to um, uh, perhaps exaggerate his antipathy to Origen's theology and hide the fact that actually he is indebted to Origen's textual scholarship um, and Origen's um, exegesis of of the Bible. Um, Jerome is probably the most extreme example there, but um, that's kind of uh, illustrates uh, particularly the way in which the Western tradition um, borrowed from Origen. So his works were being translated into Latin by people like Rufinus, who Jerome knew well. Origen's exegesis was deeply formative on very important preachers like Ambrose of Milan. Um, and so the origin, Originistic exegetical tradition, uh, the attention he played to the particularity of the Bible, was deeply formative on Western Christianity as well as Eastern Christianity. But, as you've um, hinted, people were becoming um, cautious about some other aspects of of Origen's uh, theology. Um, The Doctrine of the Trinity is an interesting one because all early Christian theologians have doctrines of the Trinity that don't quite match up to the creeds of Nicaea and Constantinople because of the way which Christian doctrine developed. And if you see Origen as part of that movement of development he he doesn't seem to me to be such a an outlier in 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 that case he probably does have a doctrine of the trinity which is subordinationist in some respects but that just places him alongside other people um right. who were writing at that time and mm. it wasn't until the fourth century where the christian doctrine of the trinity um was formulated with com- complete clarity well you call it complete well, clarity let's say complete verbal consistency that's a good way of putting it. Because <laughs> <laughs> clarity is another question. Um, so we have origin. What are the planks of the originist uh, platform? I know that are, that be- end up becoming heretical. Uh, universal salvation is one. Some Trinitarian problems. I know that his uh, spherical resurrection body was something that was objected to, which doesn't survive in the in the origin corpus that we have. But I believe it's condemned at the f- first so-called anti-originist. 
uh, church council? Yes. So, um, personally, I'm not convinced that he ever taught that the resurrection body would be spherical. Um, what he yes, teaches, not circular. Sorry. It, what he teaches is that um, uh, the resurrection body will be of a completely purified matter, such that it would not necessarily be recognisable to us. Right. As we live in bodies today. Um, and I think possibly people extrapolated from that the idea of a sphere as being the perfectly shaped. Yeah. Plus, um, this guy has a lot of Platonist ideas, and the Platonists were always talking about these spherical, pneumatic bodies, so he's maybe just lumped in together somehow, right? Yeah. So th- th- that is another area. There was also the accusation that he believed in the pre-existence of souls. So the idea that God created all human um, rational beings without bodies in the beginning, then material creation was created, and then um, human beings will be restored to that non-material state in the end. Um, but actually those two ideas of the spherical body and pre-existent souls and a return to a non-material state are mutually contradictory yeah and also his his discussion of the the fact that the soul is theoretically separable from the body but in fact everybody has every soul has a body that's how god like creates so it's a sort of like a, a a weird form of aristotelian entelechy um idea about how the relationship between soul and body right he talks about this when he talks about the resurrection yes when he's refuting celsus yes saying you know you have this whole shtick about how souls have to be separated separable from bodies but listen this is how it actually works and he, he kind of goes toward an aristotelian what seems to me anyway is an aristotelian approach like yeah in theory it's separable because it's distinct the soul from the body but in fact you don't get souls without bodies Yes, and the other thing that is helpful to remember is that he does say in one place that it is only God, um, which is a, a rationality or a noose without a body. Right. So in other words, um, he clearly states that God is an exception, mm. which but therefore means that other rational beings must have bodies, which includes, by the way, demons and angels in the origin um, system. So he he does seem to me to be fairly consistent on this point. And therefore, I think um, uh, that for origin, there will be a bodily resurrection. It's just bodies, but not as we currently know them. Yeah. Do you think origin really did have a a belief in um, universal salvation? pure and simple and that he was kind of playing his cards close to his chest and not just coming out and saying that i think he probably did um but it's always useful to remember with origin that he was uh usually quite clear where he knew that he was being more speculative yeah so at the beginning of his great work on first principles he in the preface sets out those things which he thinks are taught with relative clarity by the apostles and the these are things like there is a God who created the world, um, the existence of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and so on. The fact that humans have rational souls. These are all things that he says are clearly taught by the apostles, by which he means the writers of the New Testament, I think. But then he says that within that framework, if you like, established by those core doctrines, There are other questions that one can speculate on, but there is not absolute clarity in the Bible. And his view seems to be that actually that gives the Christian theologian permission 
to think these questions through and, and to speculate. Other people might be more cautious, but um, often when he writes, Origen will say something like, it may be thought, or yeah. one might think that, or sometimes he gives us two possibilities when reading a passage of the Bible. So um, personally, I think he did believe in universal salvation, but I also think that he was clear that this was a point um, where he was aware that he was being speculative. Got it. So how do we get from Origen to Gregory of Nyssa in the story of universal salvation? Assuming that Origen is the only person teaching this, which he probably isn't, but he's certainly the most famous in the 3rd century, right? And there is a tradition of Originist theology in the part of the world in which the Cappadocians lived and worked. So... um, Origen's pupil Gregory Thaumaturgus was definitely an important influence on Christianity in Cappadocia. That may have been the direct line through which uh, Gregory and his friends received this doctrine. Alas, we don't know what their libraries contained. It would be wonderful to know that. But Gregory does seem to fairly clearly have um, quite close understanding of what Origen taught not least because we can see that in various points he's trying to guard against misinterpretations of his own thought. Um, he, he seems to be taking care not to be thought to be too originist. Interesting. So in his dialogue on the soul and the resurrection, um, he is very careful to say that the resurrection body will be composed of the very same atoms as human beings' individual bodies in the here and now. Uh, he doesn't mean atom in the modern physical sense clearly, but he uses the word atoma in Greek. Um, So he thinks that in death, those particles will become uh, dissolved, but in the resurrection, they will be reunited through God's creative power. And indeed that the soul continues to inhere in the different particles and will be the power that reunites them. So Gregory is taking a great deal of care there to say, we will have bodies, they will be different and they will be refreshed. So they won't have the corruption, the tendency to disease, for example, that current human bodies have, but they will be real physical material bodies. And I think that's his way of guarding against what people understood to be Origen's doctrine of the resurrection. So it's a good example of where he's trying not to seem too, too originist. And what a weird doctrine. Like you're going to have it, it's going to be your body with all the original bits, but just with a brushed down new coat of paint, totally like clean, like each atom will be cleaned and then put back in sort of thing. Yes. If he really believes that. Yes. And I don't understand enough about contemporary physics in his day to understand where he could be getting this. But he seems to think that if these particles, these atoma are recombined, they will take on different physical qualities. So it's more like imagining that your body's made out of Lego and that in the resurrection, the bits are put together in a different combination. And somehow that will mean that in these new combinations, um, your body will lose the corruption that it has in its in its current life. Got it. So Gregory of Nyssa, when I was interviewing Michael Motia, I was sort of saying, well, because Gregory of Nyssa later in life becomes, uh, has the ear of the emperor and is, is, is that new thing, the, the extremely prominent 
Christian public figure near the center of power in the Roman Empire, the preacher who has the ear of the emperor. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, later on, that you see the even really dramatic forms of this, like Simeon Stylites, and the empress is coming to him, and like he's like, I'm not, I don't come to you, you come to me, this sort of style. But Gregory's, he's this sort of, I don't know, in somehow in hanging out with the emperor. And I was saying, so he's presumably teaching his universal salvation stuff kind of on the lowdown in a keeping it off the table and Michael was like no he pretty much just comes out and says it homilies see everything's going to be saved wow so that implies to me that things are fluid enough at least in the imperial court that you can just that the the, the doctrine of damnation and eternal damnation is definitely not set in stone at this stage I think that's correct. So I think we need to um, perhaps recalibrate our understanding of what is controversial. Right. Uh, it seems to me that, that so much controversy in those days had surrounded doctrines of the Trinity uh, that provided that one could assert with sincerity those short clauses about eschatology towards the end of the creeds that the idea that christ will come again to judge the living and the dead that kind of idea um there were certain doctrines to do with the end times that were more um up for discussion than we might um think and i think that's partly because in the new testament there are um two sets of ideas which a Christian theologian has to hold intention. So there are ideas like the one I've already alluded to at the end of, um, in the middle of 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul writes that in the end, God will be all in all. Um, There are other emphases in the New Testament, which uh, stress the idea of a God of love, who will keep on searching after that one lost sheep or that one lost coin until all are saved. But then there are other mentions in the new testament which seem to point to a exclusion from god which is eternal and theologians have to wrestle with the the tension between those two and and i think it's because of that tension being obvious that it was possible for theologians to to say the kind of things that gregory was saying Mm. gregory of nyssa michael motia reckons one of the reasons that he has enjoyed a kind of renaissance and in interest. He sort of dis- he becomes a bit subterranean. No one's really reading him for hundreds and hundreds of years. They're reading the other Cappadocians, of course. They're reading the Philokalia. They're reading all this material from that part of the world in the 4th century, especially in the Orthodox traditions, obviously. But they're not really reading Gregory of Nyssa that much, seemingly. But now they are again. He's, he's definitely had a, a rebirth. In, and there's been a rebirth of interest in him in the 20th century. Yes, I mean, though some of his texts became um, accessible in the Renaissance. So along right. with um, uh, Renaissance originists, there were some people uh, trying to retrieve Gregory's texts but to a lesser degree than those of origin. And right. it was mainly in the mid part of the 20th century um, where through the work of people like Jean-Denis Lou, that um, interest in Gregory of Nyssa um, really was revived. Mm. But before we get to the 20th century... Um, I feel like there's got to be a big story about universal salvation in Christian churches between Gregory of Nyssa and the 20th century. Yes. So what's that story in its broad outlines? 
so there were some theologians influenced by Eastern traditions and working within Eastern traditions, like Maximus the Confessor right. and John Philoponus, who were discussing these doctrines, but for limited audiences and from a very sort of highly educated tenor. In the West, the idea of universal salvation really was laid to rest, you might want to say, by um, Augustine of Hippo, who, um, particularly in the City of God, um, laid the foundations for a Christian eschatology with two eternal destinies, um, an eternal heaven and an eternal hell. And Augustine seems very clear that there will be occupants of of an eternal hell and they will be there um, forever. Um, and that really uh, set the theological um, agenda in the West for many hundreds of years. Even theologies uh, which include the doctrine of purgatory aren't essentially dismissing the idea of an eternal hell. Right. They're just applying purgatory to those who have been baptised and therefore have the eternal destiny of heaven in their sights. Right. So there's there's a sort of universal salvation among the faith, those who are baptized, even the fallen ones, even the sinners. They they might just might have to get a little purificatory punishment, but they'll still get to God in the end. But there are also those who are just rejected, who are damned for all eternity. Yes, I mean, essential to Augustine's theology, as he states it, is this idea of um, God's election that some are elect to be to be saved and. He doesn't quite put it as Calvin later did that there some were elected to to damnation, but you know by implication there are some who are simply not chosen, and those will be mm. the ones who will be destined for hell. Yeah, well, Calvin is getting his ideas from Augustine and just reading between the lines. So. Exactly, he's a, a very keen reader of Augustine in yeah. that sense. So that's our Western tradition, not very promising for universal salvation. Do we have to wait until the Cambridge Platonists until people start? thinking about this again surely not um in the sort of western european realm i think it's then that really those ideas uh, start to be explored and there's a concerted energy that in which different thinkers sort of work their ideas around in conversation with each other that's the, i think the, the point at which we can see the most energy around this idea um it may have been the case that um, in the intervening period there were a few esoteric thinkers who were experimenting with the idea of universal salvation, but they never um, gained major currency, I think. Okay, so that's our Western European places where they, they read Latin church, Catholic church, yes. out of the way. What about in the East and in, in the other kind of um, orthodoxies, like the, the Ethiopian church, the the Syriac church, like all these kind of different little flavors of, of very, very old flavors of Christianity that go back to late antiquity that survive. I'm much less familiar with those. So okay. I think you'd probably need to ask someone who was um, m much more expert. But my impression is that in the Orthodox traditions, plural, the idea of a clear category of human beings who are destined for hell for all eternity is not not an essential part of their way of thinking. So it's the particularly Augustinian notion of election, which he read in Paul's letter to, to Romans, that I think characterised this um, distinctively Western way of um, mm. looking at it. And I wonder, this is 
irresponsible speculation, but you're a good sounding board to, to speculate against. Um, I wonder if it wasn't the fact that Augustine was a trained manichae, such that when he read these texts like Romans, he came at it with a kind of massively light and darkness up opposing sides structure of thinking that he came up with final destination, hell or heaven, absolute to, you know, light and dark. It's just very Manichaean in the, in the sort of, uh, in the colloquial sense of Manichaean, but he was a Manichaean in the real sense of Manichaean before he became a Christian. To me, it it just feels like there's Manichaeism echoing in his Christianity, despite the fact that he rejects it and he's moved on in, in so many ways. Yes, I think there are two fundamental points which motivate Augustine here and one of them may be indebted to that Manichaean background and that is that for Augustine he seems to think that ultimately evil and good need to be separated from one another. Mm. So for Augustine the solution to the problem of evil is separation. That's very Manichaean, yeah. Um even though, actually, as a parenthesis, he does think that philosophically evil is a privation of the good. Right, but so he's never... taking, running with Plotinus's or maybe Porphyry's idea that that evil is not a positive reality, it's more like a shadow is to light. It's an absence of light rather than an actual thing in itself. Um, and he, he argues that in a very profound way. In some yes. Senses. But he's also, at the same time, talking about this kind of, separation of the light from the darkness and this sort of sifting, this cosmic sifting of good and evil. And I think ultimately he thinks that those wills which have turned themselves against God for whatever reason need to be separated from wills which are turned to God. So I I think that the the key point I think for um, Augustine is this separation. That's one of his motivating factors. I think the other motivating factor is that many ideas of universal salvation ultimately are rationalist. So they assume that in the end, a rational soul will choose what is good for itself. And I am not convinced that Augustine was a rationalist in that sense. So in the Confessions, he gives an account of his early life in which it becomes clear that he accuses himself of not choosing the course which was best for him. Mm. And he felt that he had got himself into a vicious cycle that he was unable to get himself out of. And therefore, the only means of rescue um, was divine intervention in the form of Jesus Christ. Um, So Augustine offers a solution for that philosophical problem, which is, you know, what about those souls who don't choose what is good for them? Mm. And... I think that's a really strong motivating factor in in Augustine's theology. It's why divine grace is so necessary in in his theology. And divine grace is the kind of positive side um, of what can look like his rather bleak doctrine of election. Um, Grace is undeserved. Mm. What's bleak about Origen's doctrine, sorry, Augustine's doctrine, is that some people don't receive that grace. And that's the that's Mm. the conundrum many doctrines of universal salvation and I think Origins is a case in point assume that in the end a rational soul will choose what is best for it um, whether it's in this life or in the the afterlife at some point Mm. now speaking of afterlives 
What do you think of the suggestion that Origen played with the idea of multiple incarnations? I mean, obviously, all Christians believe in a multiple, in at least one multiple reincarnation, because you have your resurrection body. But I'm talking about metempsychosis. I'm talking about the Platonist reincarnation theory, because it definitely seems to be peeking out around the edges of Philo, and it's definitely the simplest way to read Clement as a whole, is that he has a, a teaching of, of multiple reincarnations that um, he doesn't want to come out and say, because it might confuse the less learned, but it's there. And it, it's the only way that his kind of progressive angelification cosmology can really make sense, I feel like. Because if you're not... You, you get promoted to the next level of angel or angelic entity by living a good life. But if you don't live a good life, what happens to you then? Presumably you just have to try again. It seems to me. So I'm filling in blanks in Clement. So there is this notion that there might be um, reincarnations as, a, as part of a Christian story. And, and indeed, there's a lot of course, we know that a lot of the movements that will eventually be labeled as strongly heretical, like various Gnosticisms, have just come out and say, yes, of course we reincarnate many, many times. We go through many bodies. Yes. What do you think of that vis-a-vis -vis origin? Is this something that was on the table for him? It's clear that this was an accusation posed to him, and uh, some earlier versions of the Greek text of on first principles um, kind of insert those accusations into the text. I think that um, John Baer's new um, edition of on first principles has very powerfully argued that they were not in Origen's original text. Okay, that this is a paraphrase or that and a negatively motivated paraphrase. It seems to me that Origen is basically working with um, a division of a human life into two, which is before a human's death and after a human's death. So he, it's a twofold um Actually three, life. before a human's incarnation, um, incarnate, the, the pre-existence period, whatever that is. Well... If if we believe he talked pre-existent okay. souls, which again is something that John Baer is is contesting. So, Interesting. Um, but, but in any case, you have a human's moral development from whatever point their inception begins <laughs> yeah, yeah. until their death, and then their moral and spiritual um, development after their death. He doesn't seem to me to um, make any claims about that after-death development requiring a new right. earthly incarnation just carry on it's a it's another life and you're actually it's in a way it's like the fun really starts after you die because your body is perfected hopefully i guess and you're ready you're you're closer to god somehow yes and but he has this concept of the school for souls um where uh the transformation the continuing transformation of each human being will have a pedagogical character hence the school for souls but in other places he suggests that it will also have a character as if one's experiencing punishment um of mm. course you know in the ancient world schools were often <laughs> places where people experience punishment so those yeah. may have belonged together in his mind yeah but that all suggests to me um a post-mortem but not this worldly um experience it's not something that one can define very clearly because it's uh, a existence of which no human being has knowledge but 
it does not suggest to me um, a new incarnation on, on this earth. On this earth. Got it. Thank you for following me down these various little side alleys as we get along. So Gregory of Nyssa, we've said that he kind of, it, it, the window shuts on him in, in the Latin Christian world for many, many centuries. We will, of course, be talking about all of the 17th century so-called Cambridge Platonists and, and um, related thinkers and their fascinating theological ideas when we, when we get there, and Conway being mm. an amazing Christian thinker. But in the meanwhile... I want to do justice to this tradition of universal salvation in the Eastern churches in the Middle Ages. Like, how does it express itself? As you've said already, there's, there's a kind of leeway there where you can't, where you definitely don't have this sort of eternal hellfire and eternal damnation is definitely 100% theologically our theory. So you have to believe that. You don't really get that so much. You get this kind of more of a openness to we don't quite know. Or, or it's not fully decided. And I think there must be um, more of a distinction as well between um, those reading educated tomes and right. the kind of preaching that was heard um, by the average attender of church. And in in that sense, I'm not sh- so sure that it was very different from what we read in Basil and Gregory of Nazianzus, for example. So their their preaching on judgment is quite harsh. Um, compared to Gregory of Nyssa and they do seem to say in a couple of places that they believe explicitly in a hellfire punishment which will be eternal but it may be that that's what they thought was necessary in their preaching Mm. whereas that they might have held a more possibly a more universalistic view privately and I suspect that that was the tenor of um, theology in some thinkers in the east um, that, that there might have been ideas of hopes for universal salvation that they kept um, within certain circles, but they did not preach it because they thought that that might lead to unwanted consequences, like people thinking that they could act immorally without right. moral sanction. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, they, they might have been practicing, they being um, Gregory of Nazianzus and Basil, might have been doing a kind of noble lie, Plato's laws style thing like we're good. there's one truth for the masses one way of putting it for the masses but at our cultured um, high-end Christian theological ascetic get-togethers we broach these kind of difficult and touchy subjects like yes maybe so, there is no damnation at, in the end yeah so they're, they're being cautious or they're being they're, they're preaching about judgment for pastoral reasons, we might yeah. say. Not pastoral in the sense of being kind, but pastoral in the sense of being cruel to be kind, possibly. Um, but as we said earlier, even in Origin, you get this sense that he thinks that there are some things which are clear and then there's room for speculation. So hmm. the, the Christian tradition has often had an agreement that there are certain areas within which speculation is permitted. Yeah. Seemingly this one stays one of those areas in the Orthodox realm where it simply does not in the catholic um, schools of thought yeah what would be the next stopping point if we're talking about the history of universal salvationism within the big name christian orthodoxies where, what do we need to talk about next after the cappadocians I think it probably is the cambridge Platonists. i'm just trying to um <laughs> go through my mental mapping but 
there are exciting developments in Christian eschatology through the Middle Ages in the West and um, through the Renaissance, but they tend not to be around this um, particular mm. idea. So there are um, apocalyptic movements, people who think that the end of the world is just about to um, happen. Um, there are theological engagements with um, the Crusades and the um, advance of Islam around um, Europe. But those don't um, in themselves, for, at least to my knowledge, um, lead to major um, resurgences in universalist thinking. Mm. Um, so I think it is um, when you get to the revival of Platonist um, thought in various ways that you, you get these universalist ideas coming back. And in England, this does seem to be associated interestingly with political upheaval so um, the Cambridge Platonist movement occurs at a time when there is much political uncertainty and that brought with it a certain degree of uh, freedom to be radical right there's also a strong whiff of millenarianism in the air as well indeed yes exactly in, in the 17th century yeah um, loads of people are going I figured it out it's next Tuesday is the end you know there's like prophets everywhere in the streets of London selling Little or giving away little cheap uh, handbills about how I've calculated the end times, and it's definitely this plague has to do with it, this fire has to do with it, it's all coming, you know. So it's a yeah, very interesting time. And you think that opened up a certain kind of space for radical thought in theology as well? I think it did. I think the, the Reformation is also important. I mean, in many ways, the Reformation consolidated Augustine's eschatology. Right. Heaven and hell gets even more heaven and hellish. Exactly. Um, however, what the Reformation did do was to give people the self-confidence to turn back to scripture and read it for themselves. And right. that led to, um, uh, you know, an efflorescence of creative, you might want to use a more pejorative term, readings of uh, of the Bible, particularly the book of Revelation. I mean, clearly yeah. that was very important in... Um, the in book of Revelation is just, is an open invitation to come up with creative, or you might want to put it in more pejorative terms, uh, prophecies, interpretations of the past, interpretations of the future. It's just totally cryptic and meant to be. But it's saying it's a revelation of God and this is like, the, the secrets are here. I mean, it, you only have to go on YouTube to find even today people who are, you know, I think right now we're in chapter six of Book of Revelations and, and then they start talking about the woman and the stars and the planets and the bit. And it's just this this absolute invitation to that kind of interpretation. Yeah. Endlessly spawning new, uh, sometimes quite mad and wonderful and crazy and dangerous ideas. In, in, indeed. And it, it it is in intricate enough and it uses number symbolism mm -hmm. enough to invite people to map their own era onto the text, um, yeah. which is the, the, the sort of temptation that Revelation puts in front of the reader. Um, but it wasn't just the book of Revelation that people were turning to at that time. So um, there's quite a lot of evidence that, you know, many preachers were turning to the Bible um, and wrestling with it. Um, in in very interesting ways to try to, um, to you know to seek illumination on eschatological questions. So um, one of my favourite examples, if I can bring him in at this point, is Jeremiah White, who was associated with the the Cambridge Platonist uh, movement. He was uh, an independent, um, so 
coming broadly from a Calvinist um, uh, churchmanship, um, a chaplain to Oliver Cromwell at one point, um, along with Peter Starry. Okay. Um, and so he's not necessarily a hardcore Puritan, but he's not allergic to it either. No, no, exactly. Um, and he wrote a work on universal restoration, which I think is fascinating because it's it's deeply biblical. He's really trying to wrestle with the biblical text. Um, and his solution to this problem of the two traditions in the New Testament, which I mentioned earlier, so the tradition that in the end God will be all in all on the one hand, and the tradition that there will be two destinies on the other. Jeremiah's um, solution to that is that uh, he accepts the idea of a broadly Augustinian election. So God will elect some to be saved and others um, to be damned. It's just that that damnation will not be eternal. So uh, God has selected some to be saved in the first stage. Um, and then eventually there'll be a kind of mopping up operation um, through which, in the end, all people will be saved. A and compromised position. Well, this is kind of, I, th- I kind of think of it as belt and braces. You know, right. you, you, it's a soteriological belt and braces. So God, um, for reasons only known to God selects a limited number of people in the first um, instance but then will save all people in the end and I think that's a really a really really interesting reading of um, scripture and to be honest I don't know why other people have not followed it in the same way love it maybe maybe when the time comes when we get to the 17th century um, I'll, I'll be knocking on your door again and we can talk about this interesting character but, but this work was published anonymously and posthumously. So I think mm. if I remember it right, so he this was clearly something that he was keeping to himself. Right. But later generations picked this text up and it became very widely read. Wow. So here we are in the 17th century and we have a, an efflorescence in England, at least, of real interest in going back to the sources, both Christian... New Testament writings in newly accessible in English and this sort of thing to those who don't read Latin or to the erudite new generation of classicists Mm -hmm. or classically trained scholars accessible in the original Greek along with all these jealously guarded texts like the Philokalia and and any scrap of origin they could find and Gregory of Nyssa. They're suddenly going, have you read this? Have you read this? Oh my God, this is amazing stuff. So it's like a back to the sources, but ad fontes, but not just the, the real fontes, but the, the, a later generation of interesting yeah. theological And White quotes some of these in his work. So he's clearly reading um, stuff in Greek that he thinks points to this universalist conclusion. So. Amazing. So we have a crossover, gentle listeners, in case this isn't fully clear, with these early Christian fathers who become mainstays of orthodoxy in the eastern churches but pretty much just wiped out in the latin church for the whole middle ages who are now creeping back in to extreme protestant craziness of all places mm. and and inspiring new theological syntheses in people yeah. that's amazing and very interesting um what's the the rest of the story of universal salvation because it, it seems to me that fr- from that little cr- wedge that those guys opened it kind of blossoms out into more and more into Christianity at large as this sort of theological possibility that people think with. Yes, and I think from that point it becomes an idea that, um, you know, a little bit like 
water flowing down a stream you just cannot block the, the water off it will find a way out <laughs> right um and uh so you find it in you know highly philosophically educated people like Anne Conway who you mentioned earlier and so in in her work we do get a you know an even more creative reading of universalism which does include reincarnation um but again was her writing was only intended for a very very small um audience then you've got someone um, slightly later, like Jane Lead, who was um, a preacher uh, in London, um, founded something called the Philadelphian Society. She believed that the end of the world was nigh. But unlike a lot of these ap- apocalyptic um, preachers at that time, um, she didn't think this would lead to damnation for some. She thought it would lead in the end to universal restoration. Um, so unlike some of these academics who were keeping their beliefs in universal salvation very carefully under wraps, Jane Lead was explicitly and openly publishing and, and preaching the idea of universal restoration. I think she probably got away with it because people belittled her as a as a crazy woman. Right, crazy. Yet another crazy uh, working class prophet from the London rabble. Don't need to take care. Take, was she from London? Jane Lee? No, uh, she, she came actually. from um, East Anglia originally. Right. She wasn't so working class. I think it was more that she was a woman um, and could be marginalised. Got it. But one of many. Yes. You know, um, easy easy enough to ignore, which maybe worked in her favour. Yeah. Um, very influential and also someone we need to be talking about as, as part of the whole panoply of often quite interesting efflorescences of ideas within Christianity that have been esoteric into... into public like yeah. we're announcing the good news guys boom you know people like swedenborg as well are very interesting in this this context yeah their, their take on um ah you've got the whole apocatastasis thing wrong it's happened already <laughs> you know and it's an ongoing process like yes. get involved all these these new um, approaches to this old question and here we sit in the early 21st century and what would you say is the state of play with universal salvation now well, I think we're at an interesting um, juncture because so many different ingredients are in the pot. So um, if I could just take one step backwards, with one, one thing we've not mentioned is that one really interesting development you get in North America uh, is that you get a phenomenon which some people have called hyper-Calvinism, which is that you get Calvinists who are... Um, uh, convicted by the idea of election so that god chooses um, as a matter of grace whom god will save they find it increasingly difficult to believe that god will therefore choose some not to be saved and they simply translate this into an idea of universal election right okay um and this is partly for some of them an encounter with the experience of um pastoring to slaves to enslaved peoples that they they reel in horror from those who seem to be, by implication, assuming that the enslaved peoples are not part of the elect. So you get this kind of hyper-Calvinism, which is um, combined with the idea of, of election. Some people continue to believe that universal salvation will work itself out through a post-mortem state of purification. Other people assume that it will just happen in the blink of an eye um, through God's transforming grace. And so you get all sorts of clearly protestant versions of universalism um uh, being um discussed and um tracts being printed and 
North America is a very sort of fertile ground for smaller churches to set themselves up. And so you get all sorts of different flavours and degrees of universalism um, there, most of which have been eschewed by the mainstream churches. However, they were too numerous to be completely ignored. Then in the 20th century, you get the First and the Second World Wars and the Holocaust, which have caused all theologians to reassess theology in the in in the profoundest way to rethink what one means by by evil and uh theodicy um so the, theodicy being for non-specialists the the idea of how do we justify what would seem to be a, a world where lots of horrible stuff happens with the idea of a just god indeed yes we yeah. figure out we justify god's waste man um and for some people this has reinforced their belief that there needs to be some idea of hell as an ultimate destiny for those who have seemingly irrevocably turned their wills against God. Um, For other people, it has reinforced their idea that there needs to be an ultimate resolution. Um, And so it's still the same two options are being turned around, but against the background of the First and the Second World Wars and um, and, and the Holocaust. In Karl Barth, you get something some people think, which is close to this idea of universal election. In some places, Barth seems to suggest that God might choose all, um, uh, that all people are elect in Christ. Um, so Karl Barth takes this idea that in Christ all will be saved mm. quite seriously. Yeah. Um, he also, you know, is cautious enough as a theologian to say human beings can't dictate what God's plans are. And, and that's been a very important note of caution. So really all all sorts of ideas are on the table. Um, and in the meantime, you've got authors like Rob Bell, who've, you know, written very populist books about universal salvation coming from an evangelical Protestant tradition, which have really, you know, raised this big question and brought it to people's um, attention. Morwenna Ludlow, thank you so much for speaking to me about universal salvation. And like this doctrine, which seems to be one of the many kind of strands of potentiality within the DNA of Christianity Mm -hmm. that will just pop up here and there as Christianity unfolds over the centuries stay esoteric (laughs) 